Peter said when I walked in, I got my preaching shirt on. Peter always an eye to form and function. Sometimes you just want something that's comfy, right? And sometimes you just reach for whatever catches your eye for the first time. Uh, we have an amazing privilege before us this morning, and it is to, uh, to look at how Christ shapes our human relationships and makes them meaningful right now in the present. And I want to start with, with four statements that relate to our human relationships, and just think about these as I say them. First, Jesus doesn't ask you in your relationships to do anything that he hasn't already done. Second, he doesn't ask you to do anything without purpose. Third, he doesn't ask you to do anything without payment. And Jesus doesn't even ask you to do anything that you can't do. I sort of hesitated while I was writing these out because they feel like they're a bit of overstatements. Like, is it saying too much to say that Jesus doesn't ask us to do any of these things? But I need a text like this to remind me that Jesus is always purposeful with his instructions. He's never willy-nilly with the things that he says, but he shapes and he infiltrates and he fills each moment of our human interactions and he makes them meaningful. And we have a text before us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. You can turn with me there, 3.18 to 4.1. And it's full of a bunch of instructions for different roles of relationships, and we could spend a ton of time picking apart each of them. But I want us to look at the main point of what's being driven at in this passage. Our task is to discover what's the big idea that the Lord would have us see in these instructions. If our new self is in Christ, like we've been talking about for the last weeks, how does that get reflected in our relationships, and we'll see that our relationships become Jesus-shaped. That's a wonderful thing, because it gives us hope, and it gives us meaning, and it gives us the ability to live as he's asked us. Now, if you don't know Christ this morning, I can't promise you any great meaning in your relationships. I can't promise you that there's going to be something eternally good that comes from them. But if you're in Christ, and that's what I invite everyone to If you're there in Christ, then I can stand before you and over this text with you, and I can show you that there's meaning for the moments that you live with every individual today. So let's look at the passage. Colossians 3, verse 18, to chapter 4, verse 1. I'm reading out of the ESV, and it says this. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily 
as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Our Lord, I ask that you'd be with us this morning, be powerful and present by your spirit with us in all the places that we are. I pray that you'd minister to us, that you would shape us more and more to the image of Christ, drawing out the work that you've already started in us and working us along that course that you have us on toward full and perfect, complete glory at the day of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd work powerfully in our relationships with one another. Amen. So today we're going to approach this passage a little bit differently than we might uh, normally. Like I said, there's so much here, and as you saw in that passage, there's instructions for, uh, an, for three different relationships, six different roles, and, uh, and not all of them apply to each of us individually, some for some of us, but what we want to do this morning is rather than doing a deep dive into each of these relationships, we're going to walk pretty briskly through this whole list and see if we can provide an explanation of each of them. And then we're going to look at what does Christ have to say about all of our relationships. Because this extends beyond just these three relationships. So first, I just want to bring us three initial observations. What are three initial things that we can see from this text that'll help shape the way that we look at the rest of our study this morning. So these are the three things. First, the orientation of these relationships is toward the other. It's for his flourishing. It's for her flourishing. So you see that, say, in, uh, in the example of husbands. Husbands aren't asked to just work hard. That would be disconnected from the relationship that the husband has to the wife. But instead, the husband is asked to do something that is for the flourishing of his wife, and that's love your wife. So these relationships are pointed toward each other. It's, it's taking the unity that we talked about last week, and it's extending it to all of our relationships. The second thing is, these are established forms of relationships They're not new categories that are created by Paul right here. These are things that are already normal in society. And he's showing that Christ has the aim of not upending all of the social norms, but reforming all of them to shape more and more to his likeness. So from that, we can say that the application of today's study can be extended beyond just these three relationships to every relationship in life. The third thing is relationship is one of God's special tools of sanctification. We've already seen in this letter that one of the main points that's being driven at is everything that is being done by Christ is for our good. It's for our shaping and our sanctification. You want to mature, you want to grow up, engage in relationship. And God will use it to sanctify you. So those are the three different uh, observations that we want to make at at first. 
Now we're gonna do a brick, brisk walk through these relationships. We're not gonna look at everything that there is to do. We could spend a week on each of these e- easily. But let's ask, what's required of each of these roles and, and, uh, and talk about it just, just a little bit. So first to the married. This is the first relationship. As for the part of the wife, the instruction is she's to submit to her own husband as is fitting in the Lord. Now that fitting part of the character in the Lord is something that we're going to talk about in just a little bit, and it's a key part. And what it says is that the wife is reflecting Christ in the way that she relates to her husband. But first, what does it mean to submit to your husbands? It is a heart posture first. It's a heart posture that says, I recognize God's beautiful design And I want you, my husband, to flourish in your leadership. It says, I want you to flourish in the way that God's called you to lead us. It says, I want to see you grow up by encouraging your leadership and not assuming it for yourself. I want to display Christ's submission to his Father in the way that I relate to you. And I also want the world to be able to look on and see that it's possible for a Christian to submit her whole life, his whole life to Jesus Christ because they can see it in the way that I relate to you. They can see that it's possible and it's, it's joyful and it's freeing to submit our whole lives to Jesus Christ. That's in a word what the, the heart posture of submission looks like in, in the Christian wife. And uh, if you're squirming when we talk about submission, uh, sometimes it's rightfully so because we also recognize that this isn't always practiced well, that these things can be abused. And we recognize that if a husband takes submission and tries to work it to fit within uh, what he desires of his wife apart from what Christ desires, then it's a twisting of God's good design and we have to recognize that. Anything that is a twisting of God's good design is, is demonic. It's something that Satan loves in this world. And we have to recognize that if that's, if that's you or that is someone that you know, then you need to get help. But God's design is good and it demonstrates that we can submit our whole lives to Jesus Christ. Now, for the part of husbands, you're to love your wives. You know what what, what husbands are never called to do in the Bible, it's to demand submission of your wife. We're never called to do that as husbands. The Lord calls your wife to submission, but he calls you, husband, to love your wife. It's a heart posture that is dead set on your wife's flourishing. It's a never-ending, never-compromising aim and resolve to think and do and speak and act in a way that helps her be the most radiant version of herself. Because that's what Jesus does with us, isn't it? He doesn't remove our individuality when we're united with him. But what does he do? He exposes it, and he refines it, and he makes it glorious. He makes you the most true self that you've ever been. The present life for all of us is designed to reveal that work that's been started inside of you. So husband, do that for your wife. 
Your task is to discover and then explore the life of Christ that's already begun in her. To love her is to, with all attentiveness, see how God has uniquely made her and then to gently labor to see that blossom inside of her. Laying down your life isn't just being ready to die, but it's laying down your life today to see her flourish. Incidentally, you know when I love to submit to Christ, it's when his love to me is felt. When it's so real, and in those moments, I know that everything that he does is for my good, and that compels me to submit to him without even a word or a demand on his part, though he could give it. So husbands, love your wives. Now for our second relationship, children and parents. Children, for your part, obey your parents in everything. Now you ask why? We always ask why. Why do we have to obey our parents in everything? It's not because you're less of a person. It's not because you're less of an individual. It's not even because God's mean or your parents are mean. But it's because you need to grow. We all need to grow. Your parents, if they love Jesus, are on a path of growing up too. We all need to. And that doesn't stop when you're 12 or when you're 35 or when you're 95. You continue on that path. And right now, God has designed it so that you are going to grow up under the authority of your parents. His design is a loving, safe environment where your parents exercise authority over you. And whether or not your parents know Jesus, as you obey your parents, your mom or your dad or both, God is teaching you what it's like to obey him. You're learning what it's like to obey Jesus Christ himself as you obey your parents and you're training for a life of beautiful submission to him. So children, obey your parents in everything. This is good for you. Parents, for your part, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This here, it's put in a negative way and it's, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale for us. It's a tale of a child who's experienced the twisting of what parenting is supposed to look like and they're so discouraged, they've thrown in the towel on obedience. They say it's not even worth it because discipline is inconsistent or the, the, the home is authoritarian or it's unloving or, or whatever it is that's unchristlike. And they said it's not even worth doing it because I can't please my parents because I'm always doing the wrong thing or their standards are wrong. So here's my paraphrase of, uh, of another writer's comments on what not to do. It's do not provoke your son or daughter through frustrating commands or unreasonable blame or unstable temperament. In the ordinary moments of life, don't do these things. Now, if we flip it and make it a positive command, we could say, make obedience a joy for your child. Love, don't provoke. Discipline, don't condemn. Be vulnerable, but not superior in value. Be patient, not passive. As far as it is within your power, make obedience the, the, the desirable course for your child. I remember 
uh, Pastor Adam once sang to me the old adage that is, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. So for parents, draw out obedience of your child through Christ-like parenting. So parents, do not provoke your children, but draw out obedience through the sweetness of Christ. So finally, slaves and masters. This is the third relationship. Before we get to application of this one, which is often employee-employer, which I think is right, we need to ask what sort of relationship this is, and we don't have time to get into it, but one thing I'd recommend for you is uh, a November 12, 2017 sermon. Adam preached on this, and it's entitled, Workers Are to Regard Their Employers as Worthy of All Honor. And he addresses the slave-master relationship in a lot more detail that we can't do today. Depending on your translation, you'll have either slave or bondservant. It says bondservant in the ESV. And uh, we just have to recognize this, this isn't a, by any means, this isn't a perfect institution. And we're not seeking to defend this at all. Uh, we also have to recognize that this isn't the same institution, this isn't the same thing as what we've experienced in the, the 17th through the 19th century in the West. It's not the exact same thing as slavery as we think of it. Uh, but it is uh, uh, a situation where someone is under the authority of another, that person is working for them, receives pay, and, uh, and has the ability to gain freedom. Uh, and this is also, these instructions ended up paving the way to the abolition of slavery. So, without getting into all the details of, of what it is and recognizing that there were severe injustices, we recognize also that Christ is working to reform every single relationship for good. And he's doing that here. So what's being asked? Slaves, bond servants, work hard, but not for your earthly master. We're in, uh, in verse 22 now. Not for your earthly master as a people pleaser, but in an ultimate sense for your heavenly master knowing that he's watching you. And we'll get into what that means in just a, in a minute. But what does it mean for us in 2021? Because we're not talking about slaves and masters in the exact same way. We have to recognize that. So what does it mean for us? One thing that doesn't quickly come to mind often for us is that in a lot of other places in the world, uh, household servants are very much a cultural norm. And this would be very applicable there. Uh, another place to be very applicable for us now in the West as well is uh, prisoners or those who are working to pay off uh, a debt to, to make uh, restitution for a crime that's been committed. Uh, it could be uh, working to pay off uh, a debt that you experience as a, as a loan and, and recognizing that your ultimate master is not your bank, it's not your student loan, it's not the CRA, but it's your master in heaven. So those are a few that, that are also relevant to us. One of the ways that's, that's most relevant to us is an employer and an employee. Are you working for an employer? The, the, the instruction for us is don't vilify that person just because they're an authority over you, but treat your superior as you'd hope to be treated if you were in his or her shoes and work all the better for your employer. Knowing that your employer in heaven will one day pay you a paycheck and it's going to be glorious. 
Now, masters, for your part, treat those who are in your service with justice and fairness. That's chapter 4, verse 1. Knowing that you too have a master and you're not the top dog, you're to treat your employees or those that are under your supervision with dignity as image bearers of God. Pay them fairly, value their contributions, don't ask what the minimum is that you can get away with while, while walking the fine line of justice and fairness. But think about how you can reflect Jesus Christ and the way that he deals with you to those who are under your supervision. So those are the three relationships. Simple enough, right? But as we said off the top, that uh, there's so much that we can explore here, but we want to uh, understand how the truth that's here applies and extends to every single relationship that we have in this life. So I want us to, to get the main point of this passage, which is that when you are in Christ, he transforms your relationships and he makes them Jesus-shaped. To do this, I want to unpack four truths. They all start with the letter P, that we can take and we can apply to every interaction we have with another person today. Remember that our sermon series is Jesus overall. It's, it's Jesus. So these are four things that are true of Jesus when it comes to our relationships. This is the first thing. First, in your relationships, Christ is the pattern. As your new Lord, he's the new blueprint for your life. Remember in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, I think two weeks ago, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Christ in you is your new identity. So as he shapes you over time, his aim is to expose his likeness that's in you out to the world. And as he shapes you, he's going to do that through relationship. And we all know by experience that God can masterfully work in us sanctification, transformation through our relationships because they put the pressure on us. Let's look at this through the lens of marriage, this idea that Christ is the pattern for our relationships. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands. How? As is fitting in the Lord. That's the manner in which wives are submit to their husbands. It's not just the reason. It's not just saying, you're to submit because that's what's appropriate of you. But it's saying, you're to submit in a way that is like Jesus. As is fitting, like is fitting, like is the way that Jesus lives. Let's illustrate this from Philippians chapter 2. You're probably really familiar with Philippians chapter 2. We, we, uh, we talk about this passage a whole lot, and it talks about what Jesus did in submitting himself to the will of the Father and loving us. In Philippians chapter 2, if you want to flip there, you can flip there. It's just back a few pages. It says this, starting in verse 5. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So pause there. He's equal with the entire Godhead. There's no hierarchy of worth and and value here. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You could say, or a slave, it's the same word. Being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. That's a strong word. It's, it's the verb form of the same word that's used for children and for slaves. He obeyed the will of his father to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now, it, it seems almost irreverent to pick apart who Christ is here. To say, this part is like husbands and this part of Christ is like wives because he's all of that at the same time. But first, we're confronted with the reality that God, the Son, Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, he became obedient to another, to the Father, And then he humbled himself. He submitted himself. And he loved us even through the heights of suffering all the way to the point of actual physical death. Submission and leadership and authority and humility and servitude and love in Jesus Christ here are so intertwined you can't even unravel the whole tapestry of who Jesus Christ is. So to to sum up what we have here is we have the Father and the Son and the Spirit on equal footing. And what does the Son do? He humbles himself. He stoops the infinite distance to serve us. And now what does he call us to do? He calls us, if you're married, for example, which we've been talking about, he says that now you two You two stand on equal footing, pulling together in partnership, in friendship. And husband, you take loving leadership. And wife, you take uh, a submissive attitude and action toward your husband. And both of you do it like Jesus Christ does. And remember the whole time who your Lord is and what he's like. That's a great privilege that we have Christ isn't inferior because of his submission to the Father, and the Father doesn't lord it over the Son. But this is what God says to this sort of loving submission. He says this in in Philippians 2.9, to to loving submission and and loving leadership and servant-heartedness. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. That's what God says to living like this. He says, yes, yes, this is good, this is right, and this glorifies me. So Christ's the pattern for your relationships. His marriage is just one example. This is the principle for us. Look at Christ, our model, and apply his likeness to every relationship that you have. We had a whole list last week of different characteristics that are all like Christ. 
compassionate hearts and humility and kindness and bearing with one another and forgiveness and love. These are all like Christ and we're to put them on in all of our relationships. So our Lord, as we said at the beginning, he doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't done. He's, he's our pattern. He's our model. The second thing, in your relationships, Christ is the priority. He brings purpose to your relationships, real meaning by shifting the priority of of your relationship from the other party in an ultimate sense to him in an ultimate sense. Let me guess thinking this way. What keeps you going when a relationship seems too far gone? What keeps you going in a relationship when you feel like there's nothing you can do that will ever please the other person? What keeps you going when you know that you're the one at fault in a relationship, but you don't even know if you have the stamina that it takes to sustain this relationship and to make it right? The answer that we have here in this passage is that Christ is now the priority of your relationship, and that'll transform this. Now, you might answer me, well, that's easy to say. It's nice to say that I'll just pretend I'm serving Christ, and that'll pull me through. I'll just think that way, and it'll help. And I get that. So, so here's the problem as it's presented in Colossians 3.22. And then we'll work out how this, how this fits in our, in our lives. Colossians 3.22. It says, don't work as people pleasers. So we recognize that the temptation for all of us is to try and please other people. But how does that work? A lot of the time... We just can't please other people because either we fall short or that person's expectations of us are too high and we can never meet them. But remember Christ's promise to children? What does he say when children obey their parents? In verse 20, this pleases the Lord. He doesn't say what a lousy attempt He says, well done. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And one day he'll say, enter into the joy of your master. What does this mean? It means that we have this promise. That we can always please the Lord. Even when we can't please people, we can always please the Lord. So what does it look to live like a Jesus pleaser? Verse 22 at the end. It says, sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Who is this? This is who Christ has made you to be. This is your new self. So the answer is that although you'll inevitably disappoint people in your life, either because of who you are or because of who they are, you can live with sincerity and reverence of your new heart and make it your aim to please the Lord and he'll receive your efforts as true worship and he will be pleased by you, his child, his servant, his friend. So he doesn't ask you to do anything without purpose. He actually brings the possibility of pleasing him, and he brings rich meaning to every single relationship. So don't forget who you are You're in him. You're in Christ. It's your aim now to please the Lord. And you can please him. 
So keep your eyes on Jesus and make him the priority of your life. That's our second thing. The third is that in your relationships, Christ is the prize. He is the prize. Keith Green wrote a song that's called, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. I love the song. And the chorus, it ends with these lines. And when I'm doing well, help me to never seek a crown. For my reward is giving glory to you. Now, is that right to say? I don't want to discount the the value of that sort of attitude. If we clearly saw the glory of Jesus Christ, we would say, to make much of Jesus is enough for me. But we get a promise here that we have a rich reward ahead. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And remember, he's talking to slaves who'd be an easy target for injustice. And to them, Christ says, without condoning any injustice, (laughs) he says that you will receive not only recompense for anything that's done unjustly to you, but more than that, you, though you were a slave in that house on earth, you will be in my house a son. You will be in my house a daughter So keep on working from your heart as you serve other people. Knowing that your Lord is not only pleased, but he's going to give you the prize of an infinite reward. He'll give you himself. He'll say, all is mine is yours. All of the Father gives to me, I share with you. Because you're not only my child, but you're my brother. You're my sister. Sharing my inheritance. So work for the Lord in all your relationships. Remember that because you're united with him, when Christ appears, you'll appear with him in glory. That's chapter 3, verse 4. He doesn't ask you to do anything without payment. Your paycheck, your physical paycheck in this life, or the good things that come out of your earthly relationships, that's all fine. But they don't last forever. They fade But without ever deserving it, when Christ appears, you'll have something far better. You'll have a rich inheritance that can never be taken away. So he's the prize of all of our relationships. Fourth and finally, in your relationships, Christ is the power. He's the ability. He can sustain this and make it possible How can you do any of this, though? How can you live out Christ's model? How can you live like the Lord of the universe lived on earth? How can you keep him the focus of your relationships? It seems impossible. It's a hard path. But this is the the lesson from all of the last weeks in chapters 2 and 3 applied to today's text. And I think it's seen most clearly in chapter 2, verse 6. This is perhaps the letter's theme verse. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. Flip back a page. It says this. It's summing up what Paul's already said, and it's looking ahead to what he's going to say in the rest of the letter. 
He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you know what that means? Or does that sound a little bit abstract? I feel like that sounds a little bit abstract to me sometimes. How do you walk in someone else? Because he doesn't even say walk next to the Lord Jesus Christ or follow the Lord. That's fine. That's true. But it says walk in him. A couple verses later in in chapter 2 verse 10, we get something that really helps us here. We find out something that makes our heads spin if we understand it. The fullness of God, the fullness of God resides in Jesus Christ. And now what? In Christ he fills us. This is less like filling up a cup at the tap. And this is more like taking a thimble, which is you, and dunking it a mile into the Pacific Ocean. Now it's filled. Now, if that's you in Jesus Christ, you live and you drink and you swim Jesus Christ and his powerful grace in your life. If Jesus is the one who's sovereign over all creation and he immerses you fully into his power, do you have the ability to do what he asks you to do? Look at it from the perspective of the cross. At the cross, Jesus said, it's finished, right? All your sin, your ability, your your inability to please God, your insubordination, your disobedience, your pride, it's all nailed to the cross. Even your sin isn't your sin anymore. It's gone. What were these? These were all attempts to please God. And what does he do? He says, fine, I'll rescue this son. I'll rescue this daughter from the condemnation of my just wrath on sin. But does he leave us there? Does he leave us there justified and righteous as if that wasn't enough before the cross? He doesn't leave us there at all. He goes further. He dunks you in the ocean of his grace and his power. And he gives the ability to live as he's directed in every moment of your life. The Christian life isn't just, I can't please God, but Jesus can for me. It goes beyond that, and it says that in Christ, I've been empowered to live like him and for him. So that when Jesus, the perfect model of submission and love and everything good, fills us with himself, he gives us the ability to live out his pattern for relationship and to receive one day that indestructible reward. So for us, live in that power. It's yours. You've been created new in Jesus Christ. You've been put into the ocean of his power and grace, and you've been given the ability to live like this in your relationships for the good of other people and for your own glory and pleasure eternally. Depend on Christ for the ability to live like him. Ask him to reveal himself in the attitude and the action of your new self to the world 
to sum up all of this, those statements that we started with at the beginning, in your human relationships, we can recognize these amazing four things. That Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything he hasn't already done. And Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything without purpose and real meaning. Jesus doesn't ask you to do anything that you won't receive a payment for, an eternal payment. And he doesn't ask you to do anything that you can't do because he's powerful within you. Because he gives you the power and the priority and the prize of your relationships. Go and show him to the world and go knowing that you will receive a reward for all of your labors one day. These are words of promise and words of hope for us in times of discouragement, in times of defeat. That's what relationships are often like, but it's sanctifying you. It's preparing you for an eternal weight of glory, and it's possible. Amen. Our Lord, we thank you for these truths that we have. Uh, I've been blessed to see how you work so powerfully and so beautifully and wisely in all of our relationships to transform us to your likeness, to show the world what you're like, to show us what you're like. We ask, Lord, that you continue on this path that you've put us on, that you continue to open up the work that you've started inside of us, to reveal the life of Christ that exists in us. I pray that we would think highly of relationships, that we think highly of the way that you've designed us to interact with other people, and that we would take these opportunities seriously, and that we would take hold seriously and with great dependence on your power to live out your life in this world. I ask also that you'd set our eyes on the prize of Jesus Christ and everything that he has to give. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.